Split Tales is intended for a mature audience. Episodes discuss topics that can be disturbing, including graphic depictions of sexual violence, including emotional, physical and sexual violence, discussions of mental health, addiction and suicide. There is also coarse language. In some episodes, names and identifying details have been changed to protect the privacy of individuals. I am not a therapist, doctor or lawyer, and opinions expressed from guests on the show are their own, and they don't necessarily represent my or the views of split tales. Welcome to our first episode. Um, I'm chuffed that you've chosen to listen to it, and it means a lot to us. Today we're going to be listening to a narrative of Hannah. Spoken in her own words, her name has been changed for privacy, but Hannah's tale takes us through her international romance that's filled with intense emotional connections and the struggles that come when love turns possessive. You're sick of my madness Don't you tell me what I'm supposed to do You're better off without me Google searches for the word divorce surge to their highest point in 12 months. There are over one million single parent families in Australia and four out of five of those households are headed by a female. I know what I'm supposed to do. The notion of a fairy tale turned nightmare isn't just a metaphor, it's a lived reality for Hannah and a warning for others who may find themselves in similar situations. To set the scene, according to the most recent ABS personal safety report, alarming statistics reveal the harsh reality faced by many individuals in relationships. In Australia, one in four women experience emotional abuse and one in six live in economic abuse, all at the hands of a cohabiting partner. Hannah experienced something similar to this and we'll hear from her how she met her partner and the subject of this split tale. Sam. I never sought out a relationship before. I never really um, was interested in relationship at all. Yeah. But I was really, really obsessed with my friends. Like I had one really close friend. And so I, um, I was always really attached to people from like certain things that happened to me when I was a kid. And I always attached myself to like the closest person in my life that wasn't my, my parent. And it just happened to be friends. And I was friends with this girl. I was really close with her family. And she just happened to one day mention her brother. And he was going through a breakup in Australia. This is in England. And we joked about me getting, getting with him. But we're on the other side of the world. And I was like, oh, he's, you know, he's a bit my type. He's got long hair, tattoos, and plays the guitar. I like a bit of that. He, um, he ended up breaking up with his fiance here and flying over. The first day that he arrived there, he just, me and him really connected and he said something like about my eyes and I was like, oh, <laughs> I love you. And then he, yeah, <laughs> basically straight, straight away, yeah. But we, um, me and him and his sister hung out. He was there for seven weeks and we were like inseparable and we just hung out every day for seven weeks. And he, but he was still really into his ex. So she'd broken up with him here. So he was devastated, like yeah. really, really depressed about it. And, you know, I fell pretty hard for him really quickly and it really took me by surprise because I'd never done that before. And I was like, I'd never been in a relationship, really not a proper one, you know, not a serious one where I actually wanted somebody that was nice. And he was lovely. He was like really caring, showed me a lot of affection. Uh, love bombing now, I look back at it. It's exactly what I would, would have been dying for at that age. And he and I connected over music and 
I pretended to like all the other stuff he liked <laughs> so, that, so that we'd connect, you know. How old was he? He was 30, yeah, so he was like seven and a half years older than me. Because what happened was we were, we were seeing each other for the seven weeks he was here. He didn't know whether he was going to go back to his ex after that or stay with me. And he ended up going, coming back here, selling all of his stuff and moving to England. So he left his ex. But for about, I mean, it's for at least a year afterwards, I had to deal with him phoning her all the time and having like loving phone calls and saying he loved her and all this stuff. And looking back on that, I can't believe that was a thing. Because, you know, that's crazy. But he proposed to me two years after we got together. And those two years were pretty good. It was just intense though. Everything was intense. We didn't spend a day apart until we moved here like two years, two and a half years after we got together. We met in 2009. We got married in 2011. So it was like two and a half years after we met we got married. So um, we, we got married and then moved to Australia and I got pregnant really quickly <laughs> here. And then we moved back to England to, there's been a lot of backwards and forwards. <laughs> we moved back, back to England to have our first daughter in 2012. We're just gonna take a moment to delve into the term that you heard Hannah mention before, love bombing. You might have heard it, but not fully understand where it came from. Love bombing is a concept that's both fascinating and important to recognise in the world of relationships. It's a psychological term that describes an intense and overwhelming display of affection, all in the early stages of a relationship. It's like being showered in love and compliments, almost to the point of feeling overwhelmed. The term love bombing originated in the 1970s, within the context of cults and manipulative behaviour. It was used to describe tactics employed by cult leaders to indoctrinate and control their followers. These leaders would bomb followers with love and attention as a way to gain their loyalty and compliance. In a romantic context, love bombing can be misleading and emotionally manipulative. It can make the recipient feel special and cherished initially, but it often masks controlling behaviour. Yeah, he's always been very intense emotionally and a very good debater and arguer, and, which I'm really shocking at. So we always, um, I, I just, it wasn't intimidating, but I can't, I could never speak over him. If we ever got into arguments, I did, I became more and more submissive. One of the first things that, that I got rid of in my life that I really regret was music. He didn't want me to do music because he was jealous of other men. His jealousy was next level. And I think mine was really bad at the time too. Um, but... I allowed him to control things that I did because I didn't want to lose him. So he said I was offered a job on a cruise ship not long after we met. And he was like, no, that's not happening. Or I'm just leaving. So I was like, of course, I'm not going to go on the cruise ship. I'm so in love with you. I'll, yeah, I'll give that up. And it like didn't seem like a bad thing. Up. It wasn't like, it wasn't put like that. The manipulation that went on, I don't think he realises that he was manipulating to, was ultimately just to keep me and around him. And so I'm not allowed to go and do cruise ships because I might see another man or, you know, open mics. His actual words were, I don't want you to go to an open mic and sing because every man in that room wants to bend you over and fuck you. Like, yeah. that's, I said, well, maybe they do, but I'm not going to do that, you know? Yeah. So I lost music for a long time. What would you think that other people looking at your relationship looked like? Uh, everybody thought it was amazing. I found that out, like we thought it was amazing. At the time I was like, this is the best relationship ever, I'm so happy, like I could never lose this guy, but it's full attachment, it was just, you know, I did, I loved him for who he was. We had a great friendship to start off with, which was, which was what led into a good relationship. You know, it wasn't all bad, we had a really good friendship. It was just the power play and the control and he was manipulating, you know. 
How many had you been together by the time that you'd had your second? Uh, I was 29, so seven years, yeah. Yeah, we, we, um, we'd been together quite a while then, but that was, I got postnatal depression after her. Really badly, didn't know until I looked back on it. I was like, wow, I was buggered, you know. Um, he just didn't ever help. He was addicted to the gym, you know. Like he, he would go to the gym for five hours a day and I would have to book in him for an hour and he'd time it. So, hey, you've been well now. Like he could not, and it was like, oh, I just don't know how to do that. It was weaponized incompetence all the time. Like, oh, I can't, I can't look after the kids. I don't know what they need. Like, I can't get up in the night. I had to always ask him to like do dishes and stuff. Like he shouldn't have just done that stuff to, you know, not to help me out, but because it's what you do. Um, but yeah, I remember like, I've, I've gone back through my old Facebook posts and there's one from like, oh my God, Sam done the dishes. What a good man, what the fuck? He was the provider and I wasn't allowed to work. I wasn't allowed to make money. I did have a job before we had kids, but once we had kids, I decided not to work for a little bit. A significant sign of financial abuse is when one partner exercises excessive control over the household finances, making it difficult for the other to access money, credit or financial information. This can manifest in various ways, but it includes things like restricting access to bank accounts, controlling how money is spent, hiding assets or debts and not allowing their partner to work or even controlling where they work demanding account passwords, and scrutinising every single transaction. This type of economic abuse is about control, power, and stripping away someone's financial independence. It might look like one person controlling all the purse strings, or perhaps sabotaging the other's ability to work. It can often be a precursor to other forms of abuse. And economic abuse traps people in unhealthy relationships making it one heck of a hard situation to get out of. He, he always made money from like f many different sources. So we managed to save like a hundred grand together. Well, together. Every money, every penny I got from Centrelink was straight to him. So it's like, okay, I've got the joint card. So you had a joint account? Yep. And? I sent him notifications every time I spent any money. How did you send it, like, as a message? No, the Commonwealth Bank sent him notifications every time I used the card. Did you set that up? Or no, did he? he set that up. Okay. So you've got the one income, plus you're getting some support, some like, yeah. sort of benefits as well. Yeah. Were you renting, or did you Well, we out? lived in his parents' old house. We had to pay hardly any rent. Yeah, I struggled with not having financial freedom, having to ask to spend every penny. There was a time where I had a credit card that I got in secret, just to not have him flip out about how much I've spent on food shopping for the whole house. Like, you know, just for the whole house. And I, and I got up, I ended up spending like $10,000 on kids' clothes and just like impulse spending because I was just so, um, I don't know what it was, like trapped and needed some kind of outlet. How did that go? Did he find out? Oh about yeah, it? he found out about it. Um, yeah, I, was, I was bought so much stuff that I was quite good friends with the people that ran the shop. I had lots of friends in the shop at the time. He made me go in to the shop, brought me in, made them bring up my account statement and show him. I was humiliated. I was like crying, God. I'm like a real introvert. I don't like confrontation at all. And I was so embarrassed. And he was like, look at all this stuff. This is what you've all spent. And you know, I was just terrible. And then- How did you find out that you had a card? I can't remember. Must have blocked that out. <laughs> I can't remember. I was always, the, I never had big secrets, like I never cheated or anything like that. 
Um, but until then I was like so loyal that it was laughable that he would think I would have any, you know. And it wasn't me that he said, always said it wasn't me that he didn't trust, but I was always hiding small things from him. Like I'd go for a coffee with my friends and he'd call up and be like, why the fuck have you not t um, come home? Why are you not at home? Why are you out for a coffee? Like going for a coffee with my friends was the worst thing ever. And I, the first time I ever woke up to like, oh, this is a bit of emotional abuse was when I was at a cafe and he'd called and he'd called my friend's phone because I had no reception. And he was just yelling and the, the phone wasn't on speaker and everyone could hear him. And they were like, the way their faces looked. And I was like, oh, this is not normal behavior. And then my friends sort of lit the spark. <laughs> they, and he still hates the friend that, you know, helped me realize that something was, you know, I didn't have to actually stay in this place. I wasn't happy. And admitting that I wasn't happy was the hardest thing I've ever done. Cause I, I was like, no, I must be happy. This is perfect. I'm being provided for. I have a safe place. I have two beautiful kids. I mean, I must be the most ungrateful bitch in the world if I'm not happy in this situation. And it was just, there was so much in, there was so much pressure on myself in the way the family was just meant to be. And the fact that this is it now, you've, you know, you've got to bring these kids up in this family unit. That's all, that's the only choice you've got for the rest of your life. And I didn't realize I was feeling trapped for quite a long time, even before I had my second daughter. And I know a lot of people that are, and I see it and you can't do anything because people told me at the time and I'm like, no, cause that's not my reality. I'm not, I'm not living what you're saying. Was it more towards the end that people were mentioning it to you? Yeah. Yeah, apart from my mum, my mum always were like, oh God, he's very controlling. But my mum's also very controlling, so. <laughs> she sees it. <laughs> so she's like, ah, oh, he's yeah. taking the control away from me. Yeah. So, but he just, yeah, he didn't let me hang out with my mum when she was here. And I, I'm living on the other side of the world. There was always a jealousy thing between him and my mum because my mum and I have a very, very close relationship. And she's, she was like my best mate, you know. So you were living here, he was the breadwinner? Yeah, because he had to be. You know, bringing yeah. the income in mm -hmm. and you were basically, you know, at home, wife, two kids. It was too much for me emotionally. See how like it would feel almost suffocated or trapped. Yeah. You know, not only are you living over here, you mm -hmm. no friends. No money. At least while you were over here, but then you're living with no external financial support. You're in a home that his family are connected to. For me, it sounds like this really dramatic, very yeah. intense relationship. It's like a fairy tale that was also a nightmare and it was both things legitimately and separately like at the same time weird it's, it's really hard to explain but it was it was like a fairy tale everything that um we planned like we knew we were gonna i knew i was gonna have two girls and get married and have this beautiful life in australia all of that came true and it was great and then it wasn't like there was a lot of other things going on like the sexual stuff i he had a, like i think he had a sex addiction um, when I, both children, both girls, when I had them, he had a countdown for the six weeks after birth so that he could, you know, because he knows that that's how long you have to wait. It was to the day. Th that was the main reason I didn't try to make it work for any longer. That was the main, like physically I couldn't do it. That was, was it that sort of that sexual side of your relationship that triggered that catalyst for you? Um, yeah, it was like, I cannot do this anymore. I feel like I'm being raped every day. Like it, every day something had to be done in the bedroom, every day. You know, if that wasn't sex, that was something else. Something else. Or like blowjobs, you know, like just sexual stuff. So it's either oral or it's sex. Yeah. Okay. And it's yeah. And it's never for me. And, and it was, yeah, it was like, it wasn't that he would say, if you don't do that, I'm going to do this. It was that the tantrum and the confrontation and the bad moods over it 
and I would be doing it like, I can't do this. I, I, I feel physically disgusted. I think feeling guilt tripped into it. Yeah, I just, I wasn't choosing to do it. I was just doing it because it just became like a really robotic thing. We had a good sex life at the beginning, but once my body became an object that I've just given birth, I'm breastfeeding, I don't want you to touch me. It's like I'm so hormonal and I feel yuck. And there's a countdown and I'm like dreading that day. He's, you know, and he's telling me I have to do it on that day. No, my body's for the baby right now. It's like, no, I don't want it. Also, I don't want any more babies, so stay away. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you know, both times I was like, oh no. This is really hard. But my, both of my girls didn't sleep. They were up every half an hour, every night too. And I was going nuts, like literally nuts. So the last thing I wanted to do when I'd been awake all night was, you know, anything like that. And he just didn't really understand that. I mean, I don't know, I don't know why, but he, yeah, he just, it wasn't forceful physically, but mentally it was very forceful. While Sam may not have physically been forceful, his need for sexual gratification created a dynamic where Hannah felt violated every day. For Hannah, it was not just about intimacy, but about her autonomy, which was stripped away bit by bit. There's a book by Lundy Bancroft called Why Does He Do That? Inside the Minds of Angry and Controlling Men. And I'll link the details of the book in our show notes for you. But Bancroft details in his book that if you are involved with a sexually exploitive partner, you may find that sex is sometimes, or perhaps always, a nightmare. That in the early months and years of the relationship, the exciting and loving sexuality can blend slowly into arm-twisting ugliness. Exploitive, rough, coercive, uncaring sex is similar to physical violence in its effect and can sometimes be worse. And part of why it feels so degrading is that women can sense the fact that in her partner's mind, she ceased to exist as a human being. Abusive men who have these kinds of attitudes of sexual ownership sometimes refuse to use birth control or even to practice safe sex. The patterns come out before you realise what's actually going on. And I had started to drink like every night. I'd started to like try and escape my life quite a long time before I knew I wanted to escape my life. Um, and during the day I was great, I was the perfect mum. And then at night time I would like secretly drink or, you know, drink more than I was allowed. Sam used to measure out shots like in this little measure and say that's all you're having, you know, and stuff like that. <laughs> and I would just have my own secret bottle and I'd just fill up with a bit more. So I'd be wrecked and then he would think I was a lightweight but I just couldn't cope. Like my daughter, when my daughter was two, I survived a really serious suicide attempt. And I, I um, took a massive overdose and ended up, in, my heart stopped. I ended up in a coma for a couple of days. Was your second one? Yeah, two, she was two. So this is 2017. And we split in 2019. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it was still a while after that. And that was because I had a huge fight one night. And um, he headbutted me. And he's not, he's not usually physically violent. So, and, but I was really baiting him right up in his face, really going for it, you know. I, he just wanted to get me out of his face. And he snapped and did that. And then um, he said that he was leaving. And I took that as, like, forever. And then I was drunk enough that my fears all came out and I was like, okay, then I'll, I'll go too then. But he'd left me alone with the girls and I was, you know, I felt terrible. I can't believe that I was the kind of person that would do that. But I was, I was in that darker place. And I ended up making some phone calls to people and not saying anything, but people said I, I sounded sober, but was saying weird stuff. So they called an ambulance and they called Sam and he came back. And by the time he got back, they were like cutting my clothes off me. But the kind of person that he, he is, is like 
very dramatic. Obviously, that's a dramatic situation, but he likes to make things seem as worse as they possibly can seem. And so he brought the girls to the hospital <laughs> at like five and two. And they're very, 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 very empathetic girls. Like, and it was like, that have been a traumatic for them. They have never mentioned it, actually. Thank God they haven't really remembered that. And it was like, he was like, look at the girls, how could you do that to them? Like, I just woke up on life support. And all I could think of was, I'm so scared of leaving this hospital and the confrontation that's going to happen after it. Had he ever tried to find some support for you? Had he identified no. you were depressed? Oh, not depressed, no, he just thought I had a drinking problem. <laughs> it was a lot of me not realising that I was the way I was or accepting that the, I was the way I was. And I wasn't blaming him for it, but we just really bounced off each other. And I did, I did have a, there was a time where I did actually have a drinking problem where I would drink every day. And that was leading up to that. And I was quite drunk when I took that. And I don't think I would have done it sober. But was it intentional? Yeah, yes, it was, you know, I'd, I'd felt like it. And there was a switch that I could easily switch off during the day. Like, no, of course I'm not gonna do that. I feel, there's a difference between feeling suicidal and actually thinking I'm gonna go and kill myself. And that switch wasn't controllable after I'd been drinking. After the, that attempt, um, I didn't drink for a really long time. There was so much pressure on me to redeem myself for doing that because I was made to feel like a piece of shit, really, for, the, for deciding that, you know, I would leave my kids. The following year and a half, I didn't drink at all. And I lied to myself and said that that was, you know, what I wanted to do. I was just doing it so that he didn't mm -hmm. confront me about it, I think. I think, if I'm honest. Did he talk to you about why you'd gotten into that really dark place? Mm -mm. I want to pause and address an issue here that Hannah has touched on, and it's the relationship between abusive relationships and alcoholism, especially in women. And according to a study that's been published in the Journal of Studies on Alcohol and Drugs, Women who have been in emotionally or physically abusive relationships are more likely to develop a dependency on alcohol. And this coping mechanism may serve as a temporary escape, but it tends to exacerbate the problem and create a vicious cycle. The double-edged sword here is that what makes it more complicated is that the alcohol abuse can often be weaponized within the relationship, used as a tool for control or even as a way to place blame on the victim. And this creates a toxic loop that's difficult to break free from. So let's get back to Hannah's story and see how she did. Oh, my mum was really mad. They saw his controlling nature from really early on. My mum and dad came to visit here once and I wasn't allowed to go and travel with my mum. And my mum was like, let's go do this, let's go do that. And now even saying it, it just sounds stupid. Like, you're not allowed. I'm an adult who tells me what I can and can't do. But it was just before the relationship, I wouldn't have done that. But slowly, it's like someone told me this analogy of putting a frog in a pan of water. And if you heat it up slowly, the frog will die in the boiling water. But if you put it in and it's already hot, it will just jump out. It's like you don't realise it's boiling. So you just slowly, you know. Conditioned. To exactly. Yeah, it was really slow. And there were so many good things that, and everyone else was like, uh, we had a few people say to us when we broke up that, wow, if you guys have broken up, none of us have got a chance. That's how perfect it looked from the outside. And none of those things were fake either. That was just like how it was sometimes. And we weren't putting the dark stuff. All the dark stuff was just me being a fuck up. That's how I felt and that's how it was portrayed.
Six months later, I put a post up basically saying, I'm a piece of shit, thank, thank God for Sam for being there for me through all of this and for putting up with me. I'd actually written that for putting up with me and all this stuff. Makes me sad, like, not, I don't blame him for causing it, but I definitely don't blame myself. I started to, to realise I wanted to leave. I, I think I knew for a couple of years before I actually did, mm. you know, before that suicide attempt at least. I was like having ideas and I was like, oh, I can't do that. I can't leave the marriage, so my only way out is this is better, like because it looks better, you know. But rather than leave, you know, I don't know the logic behind that, but that's kind of how I felt. I was like, it looks better to kill myself than to leave the marriage. That's how you know stuck I felt in that. And um, my friends did talk me into like having some kind of conversation with him. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. Um, I can't. No, I can't even remember that conversation. I just know it was had, and I know that I said I couldn't do this anymore, I was leaving. Um, and it was after the specific friend, We'd, we went to her house, and I got really drunk. And it was a birthday party, but it was a nighttime thing, and everyone was drinking wine. Right? And he was like, not allowing me to drink, so I was like going around getting other people's drinks, you know. And um, I did, I got way too drunk. But he could have, not, I wasn't doing anything, but he could have like put me in the car, driven me home, and been like, oh god why'd you get that drunk you know and I feel like that's a normal thing to do like people get drunk you just ship them home and they'll be I would have just gone to sleep I was fine but he made the biggest scene about it yelled at my friend in front of all these other parents like what did you give her she's off her face like have you given her drugs and all this in front of my girls in the back of the car who were crying and I still remember this like I wasn't blackout drunk um I was just yelling at him and, and you know being sassy towards him like you can't tell me what to do and all this stuff the girls were crying and this is, they didn't see this sort of stuff that often. It, like, it might sound like they did, but most of that happened when they were in bed. And after that, I had this conversation with him. I don't know when, but it was like, I'm, I gotta go, I have to leave. And then I, rather than just say sorry the next day, like I normally would out of fear of losing him, I continued that mentality of, no, I've had enough. Like, you're controlling me, I'm suffocated. And I've, I said I was leaving and everything changed. Like, he was like, well, what can I do? How can I make this better? And so that was six months before we split. And um, we went to England, because um, he wasn't using the savings to help me go and visit my family and stuff like that. And he would never spend it, he was just saving it. But we did a lot of things. We became really good friends. We smoked weed together. I'd never smoked weed before. We had some drinks together. I was like, really good friends, but, but um, we didn't really sleep together. I didn't feel the pressure to sleep with him all the time. So I could genuinely interact with him, knowing that that wasn't the expectation at the end of it. We, we actually stayed up a couple of nights chatting for hours about everything. So we got on really well. But the physical side of it was already like, no, I can't, I can't do it. What did you find in that six months? Was there less friction between the two of you? Yeah, there was more freedom, yeah. And after I left, I sort of saw that it was, it was just to keep me around and it probably would have changed back because he still had all of those patterns. But at the time he spent money, he was like, all right, let's go and do this, let's do spontaneous things. It was really nice. He watched the kids so I could go out a few times, which was like a, a thing, you know. I didn't have a night without my daughter for five years. It's like, not one. Um, but then his family said I took the piss out of him when we were there, but I was just like, yep, I'm gonna go and spend some time with my family. Like, yeah. you have, have to get your babysitting, you're the dad. I, I knew that I was gonna leave after that. And I was getting a bit sad about it because I was really enjoying his companionship. But um, like in that six months as well, I'd started to do meditating and just decide, no, it's possible. I don't have to accept that life. This is the life I want. This is what's gonna happen. I'm gonna be free. 
Even though he seemed willing to change, it didn't take long for Hannah to realise that it was too late, the damage was already done. There was an awkward transition though, because for six months before the official split, Hannah and Sam coexisted under the same roof. Without the sexual pressures and controlling behaviours she'd been living with her whole marriage, However, the intimate connection had already been severed. And when Hannah was ready, she split it off completely, moved out and started to move on. I planned in my head that I was going to leave. Um, I don't know the exact time frame, but I had started to look for houses and things like this. It was almost impossible for me to get a rental as someone with no financial income and a single mum. And I found a house just around the corner, up the road from here, but I got really lucky. I managed to get in. I, um, I made sure that was all sorted and I knew I had somewhere to go to, but I still had to live with him for a week after we separated. So you went home and told him that you got the place? No, I, um, I, I really cared about his mental well-being and, and was scared of confrontation, but I did care about him. I knew he was sensitive. I knew this was gonna break him. So I wrote everything in a letter because I can't, I can't talk over him. You can't get your words out with him. Um, so I wrote everything down. I had a therapy session booked. He was working and, and he had finished work and he came and met me outside the therapist and I gave him the letter and sat with him on the grass under a tree while he read it. And he read the whole thing and I thought he would have thrown it and just gone, no, nah, fuck this, and you know, walked off in a dramatic huff like you would. But he didn't, he read the whole thing. Um, and he was, he was very, very confused. Like, what are you talking about? We've been getting on really well and you know, and what I had done, because I'd booked the therapy session, I made him go in with me straight away. Read the letter and went straight in. On the, on the walk between the tree and the therapy session, he said, don't think you're getting a single fucking penny of any of our money. So I logged into the bank and just crossed over 15 grand. And I just didn't do the maths. We actually had way more than that, 30 grand. But it took 15 grand. So that's the finance, that's basically the financial side of it. You know, I got that in a car that was broken. Therapy before that time? I'd been seeing this lady and talking to her about this and she was, enlightening me on like that's not normal behavior and yeah she um talked it through with us both and then we left I can't remember what happened when we left but I can't remember the exact events of the next few days but I had to stay in the house with him and he's a dark cloud when he's upset how did you figure out the sleeping arrangements he stayed on the couch yeah he just went straight to the couch I felt so bad I knew how much damage it was going to do to him and I knew how bad it was going to be for the girls because because they were some of the people that thought everything was perfect. The girls thought everything was perfect, so it was going to be a real shock to them. Um, but they they didn't really understand it at first. When did you tell them? When we moved out, a week later, I think. And how was that conversation? Did you guys do that together? I, can, I can't remember. I think I made us do it together, yeah. I seem to have a really good way of blocking out quite so important things. Like, <laughs> but yeah, but... Yeah, because I would have felt so bad about it. But the, the custody side of things, so we sort of just assumed it just happened to fall into place that I would have the kids most of the time and he would have them every other weekend. Um, but he actually had an injury very soon after we broke up, within weeks. Um, yeah, and he, but he had to go to England, so he just left to England for six weeks. We'd just broken up and then he just went to England, six weeks. And then all of the emotional stuff that he'd put on them, he would cry on the phone and didn't he's never hidden any emotion from them which I disagree with I think you show that when you're upset it's okay but not inappropriate amounts of of stuff like especially when it makes the other parent look like the bad guy I've never done that with him he's done that with me a few times in in the way that he does which is 
you can't tell anyone how he's done it, but he's just done it, you know? Like he had, he told them I decided to break up the family. So they're like, well, that confirms that. And why would you hurt daddy like this, you know? So you're the bad guy. So he hasn't said, mummy's the bad guy. But there was one time where Sam came over and argued in front of the girls and belittled me and yelled at me. It's like the girls see him acting really intimidating like that. That it's nothing. Don't understand why that's not like, oh my God, I can't believe daddy acted like that towards you. But what they actually said afterwards was like, how could you make daddy feel like that? To me, <laughs> that's, the, that's what I was telling you with the sneaky manipulation. Like he, I, he doesn't know he's doing it, but I'm still the bad guy, even though I'm the one being yelled at. It's so insidious. It's like, you can't explain how it's happening. Did you notice that mention of sneaky manipulation? Bancroft in his book that I mentioned a little bit earlier talks about how each woman who's involved with an abusive or controlling man has to deal with his unique blends of tactics and attitudes and that no one should ever tell an abused woman, I know just what you're going through because the experience for each woman is different. That confusion is part of the control. Every abused woman finds herself fighting to make sense of what's happening. What really stands out here and what's particularly insidious about Hannah's situation is that she remains the bad guy, even when she's the one who's being mistreated. This complex emotional dynamic confuses her children, making it even more difficult for them. What do you tell the kids? What do you explain to them as to why you've made the decision? I've explained lots of times the reasons, and I've said to them, there's some reasons that you can't be told right now that I'll explain to you when you're older. Um, and that I was very unhappy for quite a long time, and so was Daddy. And and you would have ended up unhappy um, because we were unhappy. Um, and I want them to know that they don't have to stay somewhere that they're unhappy. They don't have to just accept that their fate if they want to leave. That was really important because I felt so trapped. I don't want them to ever feel like that. Um, but they still see it as me breaking up the family for now. But when they're older, I've something that you have to accept sometimes is that they don't understand now. They might think you're the bad guy for now. But I looked back on my mum for a lot of things as an adult and I saw why she did stuff and I was like, oh, okay, yeah, you're not such a bitch. <laughs> he actually meant, meant well. Yeah. You have to let go of wanting to be the hero, yeah. like really quickly. Did you do any financial separation? No, just that <laughs> I transferred that money. I practically begged him for some more when I'd run out and he sent another 1500 But it was like really drummed home that I had fucked him over financially mm. and that I had been a, a gold digger and you know taken all of that I don't think I, I don't think he still really gets how little I took now I could have taken half his super I didn't touch his super mm. I didn't know about that until very recently so you know how I said in that last six months we went to the UK there became this whole thing of I made him spend all of his money that he'd earned all of his hard-earned money and something I'm enlightened to is that there is no yours or theirs in a relationship like that, especially if you can't work and you've got no career earning capacity. I had so many possibilities that I could have done before I met him and being with him meant I didn't do uni, I speak languages, I didn't develop that, I could have been a translator, I could have had a career, I didn't have a career. So I'm now in my mid-30s with no career prospects and I didn't know that. I didn't know that that was a thing to consider, that all of that income earning capacity is also gone because of that relationship. He was able to build up qualifications and skills that I couldn't. So he's now still doing stuff because of, you know, 
that relationship. And he won't see it like that. But um, that is that's the reality of it. I didn't have, a, I wasn't allowed to go and earn money. So I didn't. So did you speak with anyone, receive any financial support during the separation? No, none, no. nothing. Nothing at all. Know? If I had, I wouldn't have done it anyway because of my main goal in the separation was to, to have a positive relationship with my girl's dad. That was my main goal, and anything that jeopardised that was a, no, I'm not, I'm, it's not worth it. Money means nothing to me. This means a lot to me. The way that they see I treat their dad, the way that they see that you cannot be understanding for someone after you've hurt them. Yeah. But there's like there's error in that too because I did fuck myself over financially quite a lot. And what I didn't think of that's been made clear to me now is that it's not me. It's the kids' well-being. That financial stuff is for the kids. It's not for me. And I never really thought of it like that. I always felt like it would be a selfish thing to do. And I was terrified of the kids thinking that I just wanted to grab all of his money. And, mm. and you know, even now, the child support I get is minimal compared to what it should be. And I'm, I'm trying to work up the courage to have a conversation about, hey, this isn't for me. But I've, uh, it's my responsibility. How did you organise that? You're getting family tax yeah. when you've moved out. Did you apply for any other Centrelink benefits? Uh, parenting payments, single... Everything that I could, yeah. Every, rent assistance, everything that I could, yeah. I had no money. I had to go to food banks often, until very recently. I only recently got out of the mindset of, oh, I can't work, like a couple of months ago. Like, now I've, I was like, oh yeah, I can actually go and get a job. Yeah, I did th I've did. done occasional gigs and stuff, but because of when the kids are going to their dads, I'm still like, and then every time I, th every time I say, um, oh, I need more help financially, so they can pay for care for the kids and stuff. He's like, oh, I'll just take them more. So that it goes over the shared care thing. Has it always been the same days and nights that they uh, could be with It was always every other, from the start when we made this arrangement, it was every other weekend and one day in the week. So four, it was four nights or four nights. Now it's five. So both are yeah, at yeah. school now and it's still stayed sort of similar. It's sort of the same, yeah. Five, and he did like... I say threaten 50-50 a couple of times and he's tried it and gone back on it a couple of times. Pretty Not great. quite 50-50 but he had them six nights a fortnight. Okay, how long did that last? So a month I think. That's too much for him. But I was worried. I don't know. The reason that I wasn't wanting that is because of his emotional dysregulation. It's And that's not meant to be in an offensive way but I noticed that they worry about his well-being. They're constantly anxious that he's upset. Um, and I've told him that. I've had very recently some really good conversations with him about, and honest conversations about how um, the kids are worried about you and that shouldn't be. And you need to fix yourself. It's your responsibility. And without a fear of him like confronting me about it. Mm -hmm. So I'm able to talk to him like that now. Not about everything. The child support's a big one that I really need to... Finance is a big thing that I need to let go of his feelings over when I know... Uh, he's just bought a business that costs like 40 grand and he's paying me a hundred dollars a fortnight child support mm, Yeah, and I accepted it mm. and agreed to it. Have you lodged it? Yeah, it's, it tells me an amount I actually just checked and it and it was way higher, but I had the, the percentage of care wrong The whole time so I don't actually know what it's meant to be so yeah. but it's definitely not $25 a week per child mm. um, But he does like he pays for half of all the school stuff and then he pays money towards other stuff here and there and he will occasionally just give me 50 bucks towards whatever we're doing that day. I was so afraid of Sam taking them 50-50 because I thought their mental health would suffer that I just sort of 
left it. All the finance stuff, I just left it. What about birthdays and other things like that? Really? Yeah, we always do it joint. We would like birthday dinners together every time. We always have. It's been a given. It's just something that we continue to do to keep some um, like continuity for the girls. The first two years after we separated, maybe three years, Sam stayed over at Christmas. Last year was the first Christmas that um, they didn't they didn't wake up with me. I was like, what? That was like horrible. It's horrible. Um, he would have felt like shit every time he couldn't be with them. So I've had to always factor in his going through shit too. So then it stops, it stops me being angry at him. Did you know how he coped in those first couple of With the kids. Did yeah. you do it all on his own? Yeah, he, well, he never had and he just had to, yeah. It was like, was he really struggled. And they came back like <laughs> for for like a whole year with their hair a mess and like different outfits. It was quite a sweet. Like he was obviously trying, um, but emotionally they were not doing well because he wasn't. And they were little sponges, and they never had any anxiety or any problems before we broke up. So I felt a lot of guilt for that. Mm. Um, but he was he was loving them and you know putting them to bed, and he he learned all the routines. And um, but they used to come back really dysregulated, like all over the place mentally. And then I had a couple of days I'd get them back in and then they'd be happy again. And then he'd go to their dads again and they'd come back and they'd be unhappy. And I've heard this a lot from people. Mm. You know, they started to misbehave a lot more and they need to deal with their stuff just like we do. How did you go about moving out? Everything on my own, everything, the whole thing. So we had a couple of cars, we had a really nice Prado that accidentally blew up. And we had a blue ute that I used, that he gave me that and it was like on its way out. I didn't take any furniture. I used that 15 grand to buy all the furniture from house. So when I actually started, I had nothing. So I bought all of my furniture, I built it all myself. I had no one to help me because all of our friends were mutual friends. I wasn't allowed any friends then. And for some reason, all my friends couldn't do much helping at the time. I had a little bit of help carrying a bed up the stairs, but um, yeah, I built everything. And um, how was that for you, given that you'd gone from that period of really not being allowed to buy anything to you can yeah. literally pick whatever you wanted. I didn't know. I didn't know who I was. I had no idea what to buy. I didn't know what furniture to buy. I mean, you can't actually afford that much for 15 grand for a whole house. It was quite overwhelming, actually. It's like, okay, kids' beds, get them first. Get myself a bed, um, the fridge, the important stuff. And then I, I just got like sort of plain stuff. But it was nice, yeah. Did you buy anything that you vividly remember? You know what, I'm just buying that for me. Yeah. What was that? I remember having that feeling like, yeah, oh yeah, the, um, these really comfy chairs for the outside, I still have them, they're off my deck. They're so comfy, I can't get rid of them. <laughs> I love my chairs now. It's not like, he, you know, he just wouldn't have splurged on anything like that, you know? So I got that. The more I'm meeting with people, the more I'm like, actually, things you're saying is almost exactly the same. And really pivotal moments. And they're such private moments that you yeah. don't share with anyone. Like when you mentioned before, just thinking about where you would move to. It takes that, that real visualisation of a couple of weeks of being like, okay, yeah. well, I've something has changed in me that I can now start to think in my head what the next steps look like. Yeah, visualising and meditating on it mm. was it was integral. Like, I wouldn't have done it. I Every single day at sunset, I made myself sit down and visualise myself in that house that was my house. I wouldn't have done it otherwise. I, wouldn't, I, I had to stay focused on that, mm. and that became a reality because I was focused on it. How was it when you first moved in? This, this is something I really want to arm people for because it was t horrible. 
Like, <laughs> it was horrible being on my own. I've forgotten in the process of trying to escape that I'm terrified of being, well, I never was terrified of being on, on my own, but when you've been in a relationship for that long, it's not the same as when you were on your own before that. It's a whole new thing and it is really dark and really lonely, especially when you've suddenly got the kids to care for on your own as well. That's a whole different thing. And the weight of all of the decisions that you've got to make and the prospect of having conflict in those decisions and I don't want to do it all on my own, but I don't want to ask for help because I've just hurt this man, you know, all of that stuff. And it was really, really, really lonely, really lonely. I couldn't be in the house actually. Every time, every time the kids were out, I wanted to go out. And I found myself going out and just on my own, like I would go on out to nightclubs and things like that. But I didn't like it because I don't know, I wasn't that person anymore. I expected to be the person I was when I got into the relationship, when I was on my own. And I didn't know who I was. I lost my identity like so many mums. And then I thought it would just come back and I would just be me again, but I wasn't. And then I sort of grieved for not being me. And I was like, shit, I thought the leaving would fix everything, but it doesn't. There's still lots of work to do after that. So that was, yeah, lonely and, um, but rewarding in the end. And like when you do something like that, you set up your own house and you, you know, you build all your furniture. You're like, oh, it sounds, it sounds like a bit um, condescending towards women, but it's like, I wasn't given, I didn't learn how to do any of that stuff. And now look at me, I, no one taught me, I just did it. And how did you, how did you find that administration of separating? Oh, that, was, that was, I can't even remember how I did it. That was a headache. Everything was a headache. Like, and, and I didn't really have his input in any of it. While we're on the topic of administering a separation or trying to actually keep track of everything and moving out, I wanted to mention that we do have a really special little resource over at splittails.com.au and that's our separation journal. It's something that I've been working on since my separation five years ago because it was something I desperately needed. It's a six-month planner and support resource and it's designed to assist you during a relationship or a marriage breakdown. I've included week-on-week -week planners, appointment notes, spare pages for contemporaneous notes, a six-month financial section to help track and break down your own personal financial position, a separation-designed decision-making matrix with action planning worksheets, and an entire section on negotiation styles, where you'll find tips on how to spot different tactics, ways to keep you on track, and help you negotiate for what you want. This is a blatant advertising spot, don't get me wrong, but it is crucial because the sales of these journals keep the Split Tales podcast alive and your support means the world to us, so thank you. Now, back to Hannah's tale that's about to get a little bit more complicated. I went pretty quickly into the second relationship. He didn't ever admit that it was a relationship and he was at an avoidant attachment style, the complete opposite. So that was my traumatic relationship so I was lonely and also dealing with somebody who I now was obsessed with getting and he didn't want me so it was like I was lonely and worthless at the same time um, and then not that long after I was pregnant and like having this other relationship that was horrible and Hannah has been open and honest about the challenges that she faced during her separation, which led to a tumultuous second relationship and an unexpected pregnancy that came with it. This would leave a really complicated legacy because despite not wanting to focus too much on this second relationship due to the recent passing of the man involved, Hannah reflects on the relationship's impact on her. 
She admits to being obsessed with him, feeling lonely and worthless because he didn't want her. This dark period, however, came with invaluable life lessons. While the relationship was never healthy, she credits it for forcing her to confront her lack of self-respect. He was sleeping with maybe 20 women at the same time, but I knew all of this stuff. And where you, did you ever live together? No, no, he wouldn't even admit that we were, like even when we were seeing each other and spending all of our time together, he wouldn't admit it. He taught me the most, like the most I've ever learned, like not him, I'm not thanking him for being That's an asshole, but the lack of self-respect that I displayed through that relationship and going back over and over again, mm. finding out that he was sleeping with this person, going back, choosing to go back as well. Yeah. Like, yep, I know you do this stuff, I'm gonna stay. Yeah. I know you do that, and I'm still gonna be here. Because I have no self-respect at all. Do you think there was a degree of, no, I'm gonna make that work. That's gonna be the thing that I'm gonna redeem myself on almost. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, he was a, he, another lovely soul that was really unwell, really fucked up, quite obviously, because he's no and longer with us. Yeah, really. He had no love for himself at all. Yeah. He just always wanted reassurance. And, you know, the most genuine thing he ever did in his life was love his kids. And when I was pregnant, we spent lots of time together. Mm. We spent lots of time together. It was really nice. We actually had a really nice connection. And he was a good dad. And that was the only genuine thing he ever did. He didn't know who he was. He had, like, all these different lives and lies and women and whole lives with different women at the same time. It was horrible. So that's a danger, though, when you, when you separate. You, you try and fill that hole really quickly. That's why people get into relationships really quickly because it's so empty. And if you don't fill that hole with yourself, you'll fill it with someone else that's just band-aiding all the shit that you're, you know, not dealing with. Um, I've had chats with Sam about how he had quite a few girlfriends and the kids are really messed up over them leaving. Have you met any of his partners? No, he wouldn't. <laughs> Did you sort of form a different type of communication with him? And has that changed over time? He calls me a bit, a bit too much. Like, I can't get him off the phone. And I don't want to be mean, but I'm like, I have to set some boundaries. Like, I, I like the fact that he thinks he can do that, especially now that he has respect in place for my relationship. Before, it was like from a place of disrespect from, for my relationship, like a power play thing. It's been four years since Hannah separated from Sam and they've formed a new type of relationship and a different communication style altogether. And she's currently in a much healthier relationship with a gentleman named Lane. They met at an open mic night and the ironies don't stop there. When Hannah and I arranged to meet, it was late on a Thursday evening in the middle of winter and we'd arranged it so that we could meet uninterrupted after we'd both gotten our kids down to sleep. What's even more intriguing is how we both had this mutual understanding of each other's situations, having not met before. And the reason for that was that Lane had come over to Hannah's to keep an ear out on her sleeping kids, just as my new partner had done for me that night. And it was like this secret irony between the two of us that our new partners had granted us this evening to connect and to share tales of our exes. When I first got with Lane, now that he's had conversations with the girls, the girls actually said to me that their dad said to them, I couldn't have picked a better partner. That's mad. That's like a whole, it's beautiful to see that. So how did you meet? Through an open mic night. Oh, wow. Yeah. And oh, wow. Yeah. How ironic. Because I started going to music again because I'm allowed. Yeah. <laughs> you met him in a scenario that your husband had said you can't go to because he was worried. Yeah. Oh, I didn't, I've never thought of that. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. Have, how long have you been together? Uh, like a year and ten months. And so you don't live together? No, because we each value our freedom. <laughs> We've thought about it a few times. We've discussed it. Yeah. 
And our relationship is um, purely loving because we want to and not out of attachment or, you know, we actually go to couples therapy just because we like to discuss problems that we actually don't agree on. And things are getting a bit like we want to, we want to step it up a bit emotionally. And so we're trying to fix any problems that we do have mm. before we do that. So it's really good. Yeah, it's very responsible. Yeah, I know, like adulting. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's like we have respect for each other. And if one of us is behaving in a way where, like, it's quite clearly not what we signed up for, we'll talk about it. So it's really good. So your communication sounds like it's far more pragmatic yes, than yeah. my previous relationship. There was no communication there. It was all the communication in the past was based on what I thought the relationship should be like or wanted it to be like and not what it was in the moment. So that's the difference. It's like this exists in the moment. I'm not trying to make it anything it's not. How so, long was it between really getting together and then introducing him to the kids? Uh, I think they met him at an open mic after about three months as like just someone at the open mic and then maybe five months. It was pretty soon. It was, too, it was sooner, sooner than I'd liked, have liked. Was it with them both meeting? When did they? That was accident. They bumped into each other in Coles. Thank God, because I couldn't have... Were you there? No. One of them had the girls and the other one was there. And it was the perfect way for them to meet because I didn't have to do anything. <laughs> and I know that Sam would have been like, oh, no, I don't want to do this. <laughs> but it's forced and it's genuine. So it was perfect. Because before that, he wouldn't come in the house to drop the kids off if Lane was here. And then he came in one day and thanked Lane for being such a good role model for the kids. And it's lovely stuff but yeah now it's like I've had conversations with Sam and he's like oh yeah he's got my kids best interests at heart so it's cool and he's looking after the mother of my kids which is cool so that's really good like something I thought wouldn't happen for a long time how is that for you you're in a period of your life where you've gone through the separation yeah you've gone through all the ups and downs of that you've started a new relationship and you're with somebody who's completely different yeah you know, kettle of fish and now you've also then got both of them respecting each other. I love it. I love it. Have you so. filed for divorce from him? We've only just had this conversation. Yep, four years. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so we had this conversation. He asked me, and I haven't brought it up because I didn't want to hurt his feelings <laughs> for that, the whole time. And uh, he met a girl that he liked and was like, oh yeah, we should get a divorce. And I was like, yeah, sure, you pay for it, though. You can pay for it. We got married in England, so it's like, I don't even know how that works. But yeah, I want a divorce. Yeah, that'd be good. He should pay for that. I can't give anyone financial advice on separation because I just, I sacrificed that whole thing to have a good relationship with the girl's dad, which I do. So, Do you regret that now? Um, I regret not doing it. Like, now if I do it, it's like in the middle of being friends to throw a thing in that's probably going to take me back a long, quite a long way in the friendship. Yeah, I regret not doing it when things were shit anyway, because then it would just be another thing that would now be sorted out. I, I could have done with more um, financial help, but it was my responsibility. That whole relationship was my responsibility. That was life-changing and changed my relationship with everybody, Sam included, when I accepted accountability for everything. Because then you're not blaming anyone, and that's such a poisonous thing in a separation. It's like, he fucked me up, he did all this and he did that. No, I allowed that into my life and stayed. I'm just saying that if you take responsibility for changing after you've become aware of it and then stop saying it's his fault that I end up like that. No, you always have responsibility and accountability to change yourself. 
And that's powerful because they have no power over you then. He doesn't have any power over me, you know. I'd say that it's really important to work on yourself between relationships, which it is, but that sounds like I'm saying not to get into another one. Whereas getting into the other horrible relationship was the most growth I did. It's like, you just gotta be willing to look at the horrible stuff. Go, anything that makes you feel uncomfortable, go there. <laughs> go straight to it and just get over and done with. Focus on the fact that your emotions are your responsibility and theirs are theirs. So work on your well-being, but also don't do things out of spite or blame. It might feel really, really difficult to just like do something nice for someone that you're feeling real bad things for, but that's like when you get the most out of it. I used to send love to him when I like felt like hating him the most. Like I used to intentionally go, if I could go in my own head, imagine him really happy when I felt the worst about him. In those moments when you feel the worst about somebody, if you can think nice things about them then, that's like really transformative. The moral of Hannah's journey isn't merely about surviving a separation or navigating a new relationship. It's about diving headfirst into discomfort, making choices that prompt self-reflection and growth. Whether it's accountability or facing emotional turmoil, Hannah's tale emphasises the importance of not shying away from difficult moments. So we're at the point in the episode where I just blatantly ask for help. Firstly, I want to say thank you so much for listening, but also it would be brilliant if you have time to rate and review us. It really does make a difference and it helps us get this resource to the people that need it. If you can take the time to share it with friends, family, colleagues, your dog washer, your kid's soccer coach, into Facebook groups, anywhere and everywhere that you think that there might be someone that needs it. And if you have your own tale that you'd like to share, contact me over at splittales.com.au and you can join our Facebook group by searching Split Tales. And hopefully we'll have you listening again soon. Bye.